You're listening to the Oodles of Marketing podcast, where two brothers, not brothers, wage war, debate peacefully against the pitfalls of digital marketing. That part is accurate. Here are your hosts, Mark and Ryan Hughes. All right. Well, welcome back to another uh, Oodles of Marketing podcast. We've got a fun one today. We've got uh, our friend Greg Brown. Uh, we've known Greg for quite a while. Um, Greg is currently managing partner at DXC Technology. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, Greg has always always had an affinity towards you know analytics, data, uh, really understanding what your your customers are doing and using that to drive marketing decisions. So uh, we intend to talk a lot about that. So welcome, Greg. Thanks, guys. I'm glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about. I know we've asked before, but we'll ask you to repeat it. Uh, managing partner at at DXC sure. Technology. It sounds cool. What sure. So mean? DXC is, I always say DXC is one of those big giant companies that nobody's ever heard of. Um, $20 billion. I had not heard of them yeah. until talking to you. $20 billion, 135,000 <laughs> people across the globe, um, working with a number of the biggest fortune 500, 100 companies in, in the globe also. Um, I've been here for about two and a half years. My focus since I started here has been mostly on analytics um, that's kind of what my background has transitioned into. Um, I recently was promoted to managing partner, which is really essentially saying we are looking to you, Greg, to drive our go-to-market strategy inside a particular industry. And they've moved me into healthcare and sciences, which is what that is. So um, I'll focus on a handful of big clients and basically like how do we best meet their needs and how do we best bring our ideas, our IP, our approaches to them, right? Like, um, it's a little bit twofold. I do a lot of listening to clients, but I'm also, my goal is to turn it into something that we can actually present back to them. Um, yeah, it's awesome. It's, it's a good time to be in IT, although there's a lot of challenges. Like we are a big IT firm at yeah. the end of the day. Our history is in old school ITO. We used to have the biggest data center in Cincinnati, like, you know, that kind of stuff. Like old DXE was, is the birth child wow. of HP um, Enterprises. Their services arm joined up with Consumer mm-hmm. Science Corporation or CSC and became DXE. And they have done some other acquisitions since then. But that's how DXE came around, which is about five years ago. Um, so there's a lot of former HPers in our organization, like a lot of just leadership, that kind of group that um, has been around for 20 plus years that are all HPers that have been a part of this journey. And I'm, I'm just coming on, you know, in the last couple of years. So, so background in, in analytics yeah, and moving into DXC, large organizations like, you know, fortune 100 firms, presumably places like P and G and, and, and groups like that as part of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. One question I have for you, Greg, is what, like, we talk about data-driven marketing all the time, sure. right? But one one pitfall is too much data, and the other side of that coin is not enough data, right? So tell me about how large organizations like that navigate and how, how your role at DXC or or just your background in general kind of either helps fill that gap or solve some of those, those problems with both too much data and not yeah. enough. So um, I think what is happening in the, in the space, especially in the large enterprise, is you're seeing more and more movement towards sort of a platform 
driven world. And what I mean by that is basically that um, they're trying to manage this analytics ecosystem and their data ecosystem as a platform, not as individual pieces that fit together, right? Like in the olden days, which was maybe two years ago, you might have like, (laughs) yeah, you might have like um, a core data lake approach which might have warehousing outside of that, which might have some end user applications that are using that data for in in stream and they can do whatever the hell they want downstream, right? Like they could make, they could build their own little app using the data, doing whatever the hell they want. And then, but the challenge is, it's like there, that's a little bit cost prohibitive when you have, let's say take PNG, for example, their scale starts to get in the way because they now have the potential of, um, an explosion of data at the end, like at the consumption layer, right? Like, mm-hmm. so you end up, so what's, what, what PNG and some of these really big organizations are starting to go to is like, how can we manage this in an operations structure as a platform, manage this as in um, the actual data ecosystem in like a single approach? So, Yes, there still is a place for hybrid cloud and there's still a place for multiple hyperscalers to be involved, but you're seeing more and more people to like make a call like at that level and say like, we're going to go with Azure. We're going to go with um, Google or, or AWS or something like that to say like, this is going to be our cloud partner at the core of what we're doing. And then they can kind of move out from there. Um, so let's, let's pick that there. apart. Mm-hmm. Let, let's pick that apart a little bit. So like what, when you say data lake and Azure and Google partners, like let's let's break that down a little bit to, you know, how how does a an organization get to the point where they're even considering some of those things? What are some of the challenges they're experiencing? Uh, how are they trying to piece things together? And what are they currently using? And then what what prompts them to start that exploration process for a platform uh, to solve some of the bigger? That's a good needs? question, right? Like enterprise data strategy. Um, a lot of companies think that they have one. Um, many of them are finding Most out companies don't many of them are finding out that they don't <laughs> right like or yeah. that their data strategy is so bifurcated that um they're they have problems of like you know multiple versions of the exact same data costing them millions mm-hmm. at scale with these guys that are so big um you've got that's actually kind of like a, a an interesting mm-hmm. little point because you know we've we've dealt with that too. Like when you start gathering lots of data, uh, just the storage cost alone can become expensive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, being coming from the the more technical side, right? You you tend to err on the side of of caution, sure. right? You'd rather Keep I'd rather store too much shit forever than than potentially not store enough. Um, so you wind up with like overlapping data and that kind of stuff, which slows down your queries and, uh, costs you a ton in terms of storage. And when you multiply that by orders of magnitude. Yeah. Global, you know, these global organizations are challenged. So at the end of the day, like you have to take into account, which is the, which is what we, what we try to do. And what I think is, um, the beginnings of this platform driven world is like you have existing business needs. You kind of have this hierarchy of, of of how you get to a certain point, like existing business needs, really strategic opportunities, which are more like pie in the sky, 
Um, but they're, they're real. Like it should be real. Uh, that, that should be like a, um, an environment that is, um, concrete, not, and then you have long-term goals, which those could be a little bit less, right? Like you kind of have those three things you have to answer to all three when you're developing a data strategy. The intent is to come out with use cases and requirements that actually allow you to make those decisions, Ryan, to say like, okay, you know, we don't need real time data, but many, many, many of our clients, <laughs> many, many, many of our clients think that real time data is necessary for like way more than it actually is. Um, and I, I think most people misunderstand the idea of real time oh, data, yeah. right? Real time data is real time as in like something that is happening right now. And that requires an infrastructure to be able to ingest process and report out that information in mm-hmm. real time, which most people don't have, right? You can't have a real time dashboard or, or something that is only refreshing every hour or two hours or day. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, so there's like a business side of it, right? Like at the end of the day, if I can only, it, in theory, for example, in, in like advertising data, it does make sense for you to be um, like, I understand why you might think real-time data is the absolute um, end-all be-all for you because like you want to be able to like make decisions on the fly and have the most recent data. Like that's fine. I get it. The problem is, is you're right. only going to make three of those decisions a day, max. And that data is going to be horribly right. accurate. You know, we, we see on our end even just... Uh, the amount of data that doesn't get fully reported or isn't accurate, you know, trying yeah, to explain to folks. Yeah, a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you get into, you know, that sort of stuff or bot traffic or, you know, whatever, where it's like, you know, I can run a report for you from any platform and, and give you numbers. And 30 days from now, those numbers will be different. And 60 days from now, those numbers will be even more yes. different. For the, for the same date range, right? Nothing nothing happened. We didn't run more things. We didn't. We don't have a time machine to go back and run more things. It's just it it takes time. That settlement data that has to happen has to happen. Um, I think what which is always a I think challenge. what you're what you're seeing some of this um, is like this is the application of AI and ML potentially too, where mm-hmm. you know especially at scale at these enterprise type you know, big organizations, they're looking at it and saying like, again, I'm talking about this platform strategy, like it's something new, but like AI ML ops, like the ability to manage a single set of, um, of models that can be reused and layered on top of each other, allow you to, that to potentially be more quickly um, applicable in data, not real time necessarily. I don't necessarily want to even get into the, the details around real time, but like, you know, it's um, if I can know and have an understanding that like and trust whether it's automation through bots or, or actual true AI and ML and trust that um, it's going to get me to a point where I can use that data meaningfully, then I think, which is happening, like that's real. Like, that's like there are technologies mm-hmm. out there to move data that fast. There's actually probably more technology to move data that fast than there are business reasons to do it. Um if I'm being like, if we're being honest, like I think what we're seeing also at the enterprise level is like all of a sudden these old silos of data that existed for years and years and years, things like R and D data connected to merchandising data or something like that. Like 
those two things were very, very separate and had no business in like, other than pursuing a particular insight, there was nothing happening there. Now you're starting to get to a place where you're acknowledging the fact that like, I need, in order to drive R&D, I need marketing data, I need digital experience data, I need in-store data to support a decision that I'm making in this R&D format, which is now happening at rapid paces now, right? Like R&D is happening so much faster than it used to be, it used to. Lar- yep, rapid prototype. Largely because we have data at our fingertips now and we can actually, we don't have mm-hmm. to. Um, it's not to say like qualitative insights aren't, don't have a place because they definitely do. But the reality is, is that like the qualitative insight. You can pick and yeah, choose. What's happening now is we're more precise in our ability to go get a qualitative insight because we have this quantitative data that's is supported by a number of data types that's in- encouraging us to like go and investigate here to make sure that it's the right thing or understand the emotional side of why what we're seeing in data so that we can go and do this, make this change in, in product, you know, toothbrush change or whatever the hell they're going to do, you know? Um, so that I think is another piece of it. It's like, okay, you know, these old um, logistics data or, or that kind of stuff, data that like lived by itself for a long time, supply chain data only ever touched finance data basically. And now all of a sudden we're realizing that as more and more companies are moving to an e- like end-to-end e-commerce you know, game, um, that they actually need to connect those data sets. Um, like there is value in their ability to make a decision in logistics that's going to be impacted by a merchandising or marketing decision um, or vice versa, right? So um, I think those are, I think we're over... In, in some of the more progressive companies, we're edging over the top of that like um, a roller coaster and we're starting, it's going to be like pretty fast to get to a point where you're starting to see more and more connectivity between the, those data types. I'm sure you guys are seeing it like even in the mid market, the connectivity between finance data and marketing data is like at the C-suite, that's what they've been wanting for the last 20 years and we can finally do it. You can finally say like, Here's the trending impact of the trending decisions you made in marketing and the trend and the trends and the trending impact of that in sales or product movement or whatever else you want to kind of look at. So, yeah, and you make a good point. So there's there are there are multiple types of organizations that we're kind of talking about here. Progressive organizations are the ones that are patient enough to be able to see those Mm -hmm. trends, as you as you noted. Right. Uh, and the only way you can identify trends is to wait and see, right? That's, that's how trends work. You have to, you have to put something in market. You have to see how, what the impact is on sales. And that doesn't happen in one week, one month, three months, mm-hmm. even it's, it's usually longer than that, that you have to collect some of that, da- that data and less progressive organizations are seeking immediate impact still, right? Those are the ones that probably still have siloed information and data. The C-suite wants to know immediately what the impact is on yep. sales. You've been running marketing for, you know. 16 days, right? It's like, well, that's not how this works. You, you have to be, you have to run this for a period of time and, and identify those trends. And then you can seek the holy grail of, of, you know, the slot, the coin operated model, right? Uh, and you can, ident- you can use trends to, to help facilitate that coin operated model that the C-suite really, really wants as part of everything they do, particularly mm-hmm. marketing. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting that you're, you're kind of 
looking at this in a in a a place that we don't really get to experience all that often, which is the connectivity of you know R and D data to finance data to marketing data to uh, you know to to ERPs and all these other different pieces and parts that do need to work together. Um, you know, it's, it's such a fascinating place to be uh, in, in today's world because you know, in preparation for this, Ryan and I were kind of reminiscing of <clears throat> uh, of our time working together, and we're like to sell. Smithfield, any sort of data-driven platform. Mm-hmm. If you remember, we were trying to just consolidate all of their platform layers into just one data lake, data source, so that we could dedupe and you know multi, you know, start to get down the path of multi-touch attribution before that was even really mm-hmm. a thing. Um, we were really seeking to do those things, and it was just like, man, a, a multi-billion-dollar organization could not get out of their own way in order to be able to do that. They didn't see the value, they didn't see the connectivity, they, they just couldn't do it. And so fast forward um, just a couple of years, and now you're right, you're, you're kind of at the precipice at the top of that roller coaster, which was a steep climb, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. once you're over the top, I think a lot of organizations are gonna be like, oh my God, like that, that there is so much power here. It's gonna take two years to implement this. Why didn't we do this yeah. sooner? Uh, which is the challenge, right? Like that, there's a maturity scale that says like, um, the, you know, in analytics in particular, there is almost a matrix of maturity that, that many, many, many people are down still in this, like, even like very big companies, right? Like you mentioned Smithfield, I have no idea where they are, but I can imagine. Um, <laughs> they're probably down in this quadrant that where they're still doing their analytics, um, like methodologies are still very much focused on, um, reactive analytics and they're they're not really even getting to the point where like can 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 you imagine your ability to predict um like getting into predictive analytics or prescriptive analytics like can you imagine your ability to actually do that that's actually real that can happen it takes it takes some effort to get your ecosystem in order your house in order so you can do that mm-hmm. but like that's these companies maybe different than our, our, our former client, um, are doing that. Right. Like, so Mm -hmm. that I, I will never understand. Um, I I think in the future you're seeing more and more money get spent downstream on the like last mile of data preparation where you're creating, like, there's a realization also, this will, this will hit home with you guys. There's a realization that says, okay, I've got all this data. Now what? And there's a realization that says, like, <laughs> I re- I understand that um, my data, these insights are only as po- as powerful as somebody's ability to use them. And so now there's a little bit of UX coming in play, like downstream UX in, mm-hmm. in, in analytics, right? Like data design is going to be, I think, a continued growing area where people are really good at informatics are going to have like a job for a long time, I think. Because there's more and more mm-hmm. data coming together right. to tell that story and support that. And yet, when I put it in the hands of a marketer or a CRM manager in a particular brand, particular region, they can't make, they don't feel like they have what they need to make their decisions, right? Because even though all the data is there, because we haven't supported them downstream mm-hmm. in something that's like actually meaningful for their end user and their use case, which we talked about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and we have that even even mm-hmm. in our world, right? So digital marketing and advertising is the wheelhouse that we play in. Uh, and even building 
uh, data warehouses and consolidating all of the advertising and, and organic content uh, interactions that are happening across all the different platforms, giving that information to marketing managers or brand managers to be able to make decisions is, is painful. It's an exercise. Yeah. It's an exercise. It's, it's painful because you're right. All the data is there. The storytelling part and the user experience part is the, is the most challenging part about it, right? Um, and so we've, you're right. We've almost moved from a place of consolidating data and deduping was the most difficult thing and the most painful thing in the world because the technology wasn't there. And if it was, it wasn't very, it was very expensive and, and kind of ill-effective mm-hmm. in some ways. And now that's, that's sort of changed and evolved. And so now we're at a place where organizations that will win are the ones that can tell the stories around the data that's there, you know, marketing or R and D or the connectivity of all those things, all that, um, working together is, is really storytelling. And I, I think you're right. The user experience hasn't caught up on for the end user to be able to create enough connectivity and, and their own sort of choose your own journey path. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a little bit of uh, like, it's just not there. Know, we, we talk a lot about data literacy and how do you create data literacy inside your organization? Part of that is like people want to be masters of their own domain. Like the reason why people love Excel is because they know it. Um, not because it does something more or better or anything like that. Like there, it's just a familiarity thing, right? Like, um, in the world of like in, in P and G's world, um, for example, you know, their, um, their challenges are scale because they have like, they're, I only care about my data at the end of the day, right? Like this this downstream guy, fella. Right. So it's wonderful that we have all this other stuff. And I I want, I want mine to map to these three things I care about and my, here's my use case and the data. And we sort of can have like one of the things we started doing a few years ago when I was consulting for myself was like this idea behind when we're designing a website or designing an application or building a product, we have all these great user stories that we've been like, you guys mm-hmm. have been doing that for a long time. And like, that's very normal. Mm-hmm. Um, in an analytics environment, I think it's necessary to do the exact same thing where it's like, what yep. I, I need to be able to do this so that I can do this. Or I need to be able to see this so that I can do this. So now I'm asking myself, like what data types and sources are necessary to support that view? What is, and even like we started down the path of, uh, maybe getting a little bit more technical, like, what is the graph or the um, the connectivity point between those data data types? Like maybe like transactions a good example. Like transaction ID is shared in Google and in many 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 other e-commerce platforms. So you can use that as a single tying mechanism for GA data and Big Commerce or Shopify or whatever the the your e-commerce platform is that's mm-hmm. actually a tying point for you um so you also have to identify that right like that that's like a really um and it's very human because you're you're doing it from a point of what what is it that you're trying to actually do like i talked about the crm manager right like this gal when i was consulting at the time she was she's super smart she was just exhausted because she felt like her job became data wrangling and not CRM management. Um, and you, mm-hmm. I, you see that all over, like, Common I don't problem. care how big your company yep. is. That's a huge yeah. problem. 
because everybody wants to, yep. you know, we have to prove our value. So we're constantly trying to do that as right. an agency, as a, um, it, you know, infrastructure type organization, as a marketing manager inside of a bigger small company. And, <clears throat> you bring up a, go ahead. I was going to say that I think, I think that's an interesting approach. I hadn't, I haven't heard of anybody doing it that way, uh, specifically yet of, uh, kind of using user stories to describe why you need data prior to gathering data. You know, more often than not, what I've experienced is, you know, the questionnaire of, well, what data do we need to collect? And usually the answer is, all of it. well, all yep. of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're like, I, that's not an answer. You can't, we can't just, while we can collect everything, um, A, we have to identify what everything is mm-hmm. to be able to collect it. And B, then you get into lots of ramifications in terms of, you know, storage and volume and, and costs and uh, privacy yeah. and all of these other things that you're like, you know, do we really need to store this information that's going to now add layers of complexity um, versus looking at, you know, what data do we need to look at uh, and how do we support that? Because, you know, that's often an uphill battle that we find ourselves fighting as well. And I think you mentioned the term data literacy earlier, which I'm also uh, a fan of, you know, uh, folks get, get access to data and start drawing conclusions. And unfortunately don't always understand kind of the why behind Mm -hmm. the what, um, which, which can definitely be challenging. So, you know, uh, how do you, how do you help people get kind of from that, you know, point of, um, I don't know what I don't know to, you know, being able to be effective with the data that's being collected and presented to them, uh, within a Mm -hmm. platform. I think what you're, so one of the, so to go back to the platform story at the, and the platform strategy is like in a perfect world, I would have a single tech stack that I can support economically and have a DevOps structure that would allow me to not have to have a million individual teams building in analytics apps or solutions for these types of end users, right? Like in a perfect world, I would stick to my basis. And that's where I think you're starting to see some enterprises pull back on the number of technologies in their stack inside analytics. Um, historically, you know, we're, we're still fighting like the battle of, um, data providers still play a big role in, um, the retail environment, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, the Nielsen's and those types of people in the world, and they have very stringent rules that don't make any sense, but that's how they make money. So they've got to like, they're, they're the only way that they can make money is by put a wall up. Um, yep. So that I, I think what's happening is, is you're starting to get down the path of like, let's look at ingestion as a service, do that one way consistently across our organization. Let's look at um, harmonization or like early stage ETL as like a single methodology and support that in the same way. So you can have a leveraged team in support of that. You don't have to have, like I said, you know, it's still product based when you get down to the end, right? It's like that when you're really developing that, um, final app or final um, solution it's still you still look at it as a product and you still ideally have like a po in that whole environment but 
up front, there's some things that you can do that would allow you to be more strict, more streamlined and effective in that stage where you're not constantly going back and trying to figure out like, um, okay, what's, what do I need to do to, to get from point A, which might be like in early ingestion to the point where I can actually use this feed of data to create insights with whatever methodologies you might use. Um, we can actually create a streamlined view of like the layers to get there. Even like your harmonization layer in an ideal environment is not is uniform enough that um, it's not you're not constantly creating new things. So like one of the things you're seeing. So so to define those three layers that you just kind of talked through. So yeah. Uh, just, just so that everybody's on the same page with what, what each of those pieces are. Cause I know, you know, in, especially in this environment, you have people that are consumers of data. They may not have the, the same level of understanding of how all that stuff comes together so that the view they're looking at on a dashboard actually gets mm -hmm. there. So walk, walk us through that. So I look at it. So ingestion and this could be like ingestion. We have like some of our clients, we have in what we call ingestion as a service, which is literally where we have a team of people whose job it is to get data in its raw form based on business need and um, the speed of business, not necessarily speed of uh, request and get that to a place where it can be housed in its most raw form. It's only transformed to the point of maybe attaching um, master data to it. Like, in PNG or in another, um, they might just want to make sure they attach the appropriate product to that data type. And that's it. Then there, then there is the layer. Everything else is just tabular data. Yeah. Just in any well, format yeah, it comes I mean, to you with some, mm -hmm. some way to connect mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and then I think there, that the next layer there is sort of like, there's an opportunity for organizations to be universal in their approach to harmonization which is like actually taking objects or data types and mapping them together. Again, fairly rudimentary because this, you're looking at it and saying like, I don't necessarily want to compute anything here. That's the lot. That's sort of, as we get to the end, like that's let's, let's use the last mile. You're just relating data. So in, in your example earlier, the transaction ID is a consistent place or consistent field type that exists across all e-com. So, that's a way for you to, to layer those things together that says, regardless of source, we can call transaction ID related to this product. Yep. Uh, something the same. And you don't have to, this is where you get into a place where you start, you can, like, we all know that cookies are maybe going away. Like, I don't, you know, we're kind of like slowly dancing <laughs> our way they're through. They're never like, going away. That's the, the powers that be would <laughs> like them to go away. That's where we are, right? Cook, cookies are the new internet explorer. <laughs> so, like, but but there is an opportunity here for us to be above the cookie layer in our data environment through this this harmonization, right? Like, I don't care about the cookie because I know I know that this um, a person from this cohort. If we don't want to take PII data, right? Like, if I don't want to house that, right? Then I a person from this cohort took this action um, post uh, purchase. You know, that kind of thing. I think that starts to help us down the path of like um, in a remarketing environment, we now have so many tools out there that are super powerful with respect to like 
delivering to you a message that's really precise. Where they break is in their ability to stop delivering me that message when I convert through a channel that isn't perfectly aligned to previous interaction, which happens all the fucking time, like all the time. Yep. So an example of that is you're, you're, you know, you're shopping for shoes. You didn't buy the shoes. You're retargeted for the same shoe in a really smart, personalized way. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to spend money. I'm going to buy the shoes. And then you continue to get the same message over and over and over for the next three months, even though you already, I already saw those. I already, I'm wearing those shoes. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I picked shoes on purpose for the two of mm-hmm. you because My really good you guys have both have a lot of shoes. I have about 20 pairs of golf shoes. It's ridiculous. <laughs> they make golf shoes oh, so much awesome. cooler now. They are like, so that's, much cooler. That's like the real problem. I remember back when Nike first started messing with, you know, making some uh, some Jordans into golf shoes. I was like, that's pretty cool. But I already have a good pair of golf shoes. And I kind of used that as my excuse to not buy any. But now... I mean, there's, there's so many. I have Jordan 1s, 4s, uh, 11s, and 13s all in golf shoes. It's, it's legit. I've, I've resisted so It's a real far, problem. But it is, a, it is a real problem. Yeah. So in that example, <laughs> Greg was retargeted probably for all of those mm-hmm. shoes and probably is still receiving retargeting ads for yeah this is where you start to get down to a path of like what's going to be your person like what's going to be your approach to your consumer data platform which is different than maybe your core data platform which is not going to house pii the cdp though whatever you choose whether it's an out-of-the-box cdp because there are those do exist there's a there's set define cdp consumer data platform is my single source of truth for um, one-to-one data, but be it like a known, known consumer. That's like somebody I know your name and I know uh, your behavior. Unknown knowns are like, right. I don't know who you are, but I know your behavior. Then there are unknown unknowns, which are lookalikes. Like those are all things that we can build into a CDP um, and feed those audiences into things like your programmatic environments and... CRM, um, remarketing environment. So really this is first party mm-hmm. data, right? In our world, it's, it's first party marketing data Yeah. that or first party data you can use for mm-hmm. marketing purposes, I should say. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, I think it's just a choice you got to make. Like a lot of these major corporations are saying that, um, we believe we can maintain the necessary GPDR and other things, um, when it comes to privacy. And the, the competitive advantage is so great for us to have our own CDP that we're going to do it and take on that risk. Um, that's happening. And the other alternative is using third-party data through, you know, some sort of DSP, Correct. right? Um, so de- define that a little bit and explain the differences between those two. Because I, I think there's there's a, a very vast uh misunderstanding they, of, of what those two are and what they are not. I, they do go together though, right? Like at the end of the day, in a, a perfect a perfect world, a CDP would include data directly out of um, your supply side or, or um, demand side platforms in the programmatic environment, right? Like because those are a 
once you start taking action and interacting with my delivered ad, I don't care what your name is. I care that mm-hmm. that behavior is meaningful for me to do my next step, right? Yep. Like that right. becomes a part of that's that is within my CDP is inclusive of those unknown knowns or known unknowns. Hmm. Um, I don't know which way it is, but it doesn't matter. So like, that, <laughs> so they are together. They're not like fully separate. Um, in the world, a, a DSP's job, which is part of the challenge, a DSP's job is to get you to buy more ads. You got, you got always got to know yeah. that. Like, um, so that's why it's hard to get to certain things that are really meaningful for decisions you might make as a marketer. Like, um, these, the biggest DSPs in the world, Trade Desk, for example, does not really allow you, except for at the impression level data, doesn't allow you to look at like um, location information, um, which is really interesting, a dynamic that they don't want you to be able to make decisions. They want you to be using their tool to make those make those movements and not be going elsewhere using insights from their data. That's changing. I think mm-hmm. like, again, there's a little bit of push from big company CMOs to say like, we need more transparency here. And you're starting mm-hmm. to see some of that come to bear where that data can be seen in some pockets, but it's still not um, pervasive. Um, DSP data, like I said, it's for delivering the ad to the right person at the right time. And they want you to deliver your ad through their platform, like 100% of the time. Yep. So they're, they're not incentivized to give you data that help might support your other portions of your marketing spend. But it actually is pretty powerful data. The problem is it's very big data because you're talking about mm-hmm. like impression level data at, at, on a, at a, any kind of medium scale is huge amounts of data compared to aggregated data right. attached to an ad or attached to a cohort or the things that you can typically get data out of DSP. Well, and what you're what you're starting to kind of get around um, is an area that's it's a bit of a hot topic uh, with a number of folks that we talk to, um, and it's still kind of a an octopus that we're wrangling, which is multi-touch mm-hmm. attribution, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, it used to be very simple, right? And analytics platforms would like to make you think that it's very simple. And DSPs would also like to make it, make you think it's very simple, right? Uh, a user who clicked on my ad that you ran through our platform converted. Therefore, uh, we attributed some dollar amount to your Mm -hmm. bottom line. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a vested interest in making that very simple, right? Where, uh, you know, Google ads or, or even on the, the lowest level, right? You can go in Google ads and they'll encourage you to say, you know, what's your average cost of a product so that they can give you a dollar figure yep. and say, hey, you know, spending $1,000 with us mm-hmm. generated $2,000 worth of business and you feel good about that. Um, potentially not taking into account all of the other things that contribute. Right. In some cases, and depending on the business type, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, years ago, uh, it was a roofing company. I don't think they're around anymore um, that we worked with, but we had some disagreements on on kind of how advertising worked with their business. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
And we were like, you know, advertising for them is a lot about uh, valid. It's people in that, that validation stage, right? At the end of the day, you're going to close the deal with the sales yep. guy. Mm-hmm. You're not going to close the deal with an advertisement. Mm-hmm. The advertising helps you close, helps your sales guy close the deal. And you can see a, a, a definitive uh, difference in terms of, you know, volume and, and close ratios and all of those sorts of things uh, by layering those together. Um, you know, how do you, how do you traverse that? Or what are you kind of seeing in terms of, uh, of kind of unraveling that picture of, of, you know, uh, I've got a lot of inputs here and they're driving towards a lot of things, but I need to, I need to use those to tell me, you know, which of these things are effective and which Mm -hmm. are not. Um, and it may not be, as simple as the 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 last touch attribution, right? It's not necessarily the last person that touched the touched the person is the person responsible for or the the medium responsible for the conversion. Yeah. And it's different for each industry type, right? So retail, e-com, and B2B have kind of their own story around what Ryan's question really is. So how how do you how are you navigating that and, and how is it different across those different industries? Yeah. So the, the first, my first inclination is to talk about more CDP, right? Like at the end of the day, the intent behind owning that first party data is my ability to um, query, run models on that to see um, a better understanding of things. Like, for example, um, actually, you mentioned this, a like close ratio is a good example. That's in, that's, that matters in e-commerce. That matters in all kinds matters in B2B. Are, what are the things that we can do upstream that are impacting close ratio so that we can spend mm-hmm. less money to drive a close? And, and it might still be that um, that's still a lot of money, but we can, but like, like, like that's a decision, but you, in order to get there, you have to run a model and sort of some regression analysis to say like, um, what are the commonalities or anomalies across this entire org- this entire group of conversions that would encourage me to believe that um, there should be attribution attached to a particular thing. Like, for example, if we see that, well, P&G believes is better at this and believes in this because of their past, um, because they have historically always thought that, um, like, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, when TV was their primary channel, um, there was a lot of studies done and they came up with this number of like 4.3 impressions, especially for a mom doing the grocery shopping to influence movement in the store. How, how that came up to be, I don't know, but there, so there's a little bit of a belief inside P and G already to say like, this is not a one, one click magic bullet anywhere. Mm-hmm. We moving to digital. We want to own our own channels. That doesn't exist. So there's a little bit of realization that happens to some of these organizations where like they kind of already get there. Now what they're looking at inside their um, platform um, is these types of trends, like we talked about earlier, where you're seeing some you're seeing some impact based on um, inclusion or not inclusion of a particular step in the process, or you're seeing um, close ratios or cart abandonment go down in based on where they came from, not what we did after that, right? Like. So now how mm-hmm. do we take that and change our approach on the front end of our 
marketing mm-hmm. so that more people are closing and the more there's less of cart abandonment. So like it might cost us more money, honestly, to get more people from this channel or from this medium into our Gillette um, store, Gillette.com's e-commerce platform. But if they're converting at a higher level, then it's it's potentially the most economical way for me to be driving sales, especially net new sales in their environment because they're looking for subscription. Um, so that's like, I don't know, like that's where I see it at the platform level, like at the enterprise big time level. I will say that like, um, I think that there are platforms out there that are, that um, have built in models that give organizations a head, a, a leg up. If you're going from zero to something, that's certainly better than going from zero to zero, like not, not improving. Right. So like, I look at like, do I think um, Adobe's end and marketing platform is the, best in the world i don't know i'm not sure a lot of shortcomings but i will give them credit to say like in their analytics platform if you're using their tag process you can start to get some of this data out and they and they actually have models to identify opportunities upstream or downstream depending on where you are what they're doing like datarama you guys know um datarama the salesforce tool very similar in what they've done in the sense that like they'll ingest all this data and they have these built-in models that, are, that exist to identify anomalies and opportunities on behalf of multi-channel environments. If I were to suggest anything to the mid-market, it's like, take the advantage. Why it's, and here's the thing, those are kind of expensive. It's a, mm-hmm. you know, right. cost yeah. in some cases. But, that was the that was, that was but, the uh, the thing. I was like, those are two platforms that are uh, potentially the entire marketing budget of some organizations. On day two, you can do exa- you can do what they want to do. That's the that's that that's like the you know like right. that's the other part of it is like, do you do we care enough about what we're trying to accomplish to go build our own CDP and go through that whole process or build our own you know data ecosystem? Or do we go on the path of having somebody be our ingestion, BTL, or harmonization layer for us? And we, t- we take it from there, mm-hmm. which is what you can do with both of those tool sets. Um, well, I think people underestimate the expense of, of doing that, right? You look at a platform like Adobe Analytics or Datarama or mm-hmm. any number of others, um, and, and you look at the price tag and you're like, shit, that's expensive. Right. Um, and you look, you start to, to look at, you know, what would it cost to do this ourselves? Right. We can, we can, uh, we can sign up for mm-hmm. AWS and on the surface, it looks super cheap sure. or, you know, Azure Relatively. Yeah. or GC, GCP all looks really cheap. That's, uh, and you know, we got a guy who can write yep. some code. We can pull, they can pull some stuff and, you know, we, you figure out very quickly, ourselves included, um, you know, just how much effort goes into that, not just in the, you know, pulling the data and putting it somewhere. That's easy. Um, ensuring that that always happens and is error free and maintenance of that data and, um, security of that data, you know, all of those things, the, the, the maintenance layer that comes with it, I think is the piece that most folks don't really think about. It's like, you know, you just, you just set it up and you start running it. Right. And, 
but you know, really you're, you're committing to like a full DevOps team, you know, uh, processes, procedures, audits, along with ever increasing expenses of storage and processing yeah. because every query, every query you run gets more expensive more data. you have more data. And every time you put more data in there, that gets more expensive because you're storing mm-hmm. more stuff. Uh, and eventually you hit bottlenecks, right? You hit the point where you run the query and it just chokes. Yep. Uh, and you have to solve that. And these platforms take that away where, you know, that's that's kind of the whole purpose behind mm-hmm. them, right? It's like, we do all of that so that you can just get your insights. Um, yeah. I mean, speed to insight was the story that I was trying to tell. I mean, um, back in the consult, my mm-hmm. consulting days. Um, so I spent time at Origami Logic. Um, which was a marketing-based insights SaaS tool. And they were mm-hmm. bought by Intuit. Intuit sunset the technology because they were essentially buying it for their internal needs only. They they had such a mess of data at Intuit internally that they said this is worth our investment to give us they believe that they believed it was like a 27-month accelerator to buy origami versus trying to figure out how to do it themselves. Um Anyway, yeah, that's a that's an interesting move of just yeah. But you know, we're not going to work with them. We're just going to we're just going to sunset them, everyone. They sunset uh, the PNGs the of the world. Uh, um, uh, every big client that was out there had six months to get off of Origami, and um, so we were looking at a lot of these variations um, of oper- in like what's the opportunity out there. Um, so I got to evaluate a lot of mm-hmm. these guys, and um, a lot of them do the same same stuff. I think like. My personal opinion is there are certain parts of the process, especially if you're in mid-market, that it makes no sense to own. Like ingestion and API ownership is dumb, in my opinion, because there's no competitive yep. advantage in that. Like there are a, a million tools now out there that do ingestion as right. a service, and it's like you plug and play. You get what you need. Yep. yep. Like it, there's, and then they handle all the problems yeah. if there are any. Yeah. You don't have to maintain APIs. I mean, I get emails yeah. every day of, uh, of just random things, and you and you know, you look at it and you're like, oh, no, this will never have a pro- any sort of impact. And of course, it does. It it really does. And now mm-hmm. you not only do you have to figure out how to solve that problem, right? You have to figure out how to retrofit that as well. A lot of times, yep. especially in evolving markets, you know, I remember back in the day when this was all you know really new stuff. Um, Facebook introduced reactions mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden you know all of our data for years up to that point has a, a likes mm-hmm. number and now all of a sudden uh likes are a you know it's a it's a nested field where there's multiple reaction types now of which like is one of them mm-hmm. um and we have to aggregate all of that stuff together now to to figure out like what is the what is the interaction on this? Well, and it's a canonical and, you know, explosion of data because they, you yeah. added whatever the hell, I don't know, seven um, reactions or whatever there is, but the combinations of reactions multiply that by a ton. And now right. all of a sudden, like the data you need is now multiplied too. So, mm-hmm. and the downstream implications of well, that is huge was- actually. Yeah. Yeah. And when they first released them, right, they were all positives. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they introduced. So that adds even another layer of complexity where, you know, at at first it used to be like, you know, 
the difference between like a like and a love is like whatever. It's they're both positive yeah. affirmations on your content. But an angry face. Well, maybe. Well, now now we're getting into sentiment, yeah. right? How do how do, how is this mm-hmm. making people feel? Because if we're getting lots of angry reactions, obviously we can't take that as a positive indicator that whatever, unless it's what we're looking for, right? Maybe we're trying to piss people off. I don't know. Yeah. Um, When you you mentioned earlier, Greg, uh, something is better than nothing. When you also mentioned that um, for organizations that are either on this journey or are not even started, in this journey, mid-market and enterprise included in, in this conversation and even small organizations, something is better than nothing. Mm. Uh, I think you're right. You're, you're onto something when thinking about, um, the web design process being something that is almost one-to-one transferable into how you should be thinking about building analytics, a solutions, a, a, yeah, an analytics solution of any kind, um, yeah. starting with that process of, of, you know, requirements gathering user stories uh ensuring that you you really understand that piece and then mapping out the experience side like the what do you want to have happen in the end of all of this based on those stories taking it and turning it into um a a lo-fi version of what that is and what that can look like uh and then before you hit the production button of like yeah go actually purchase all this stuff make it all tie together do all that hard stuff first Mm -hmm. Um, and, and ensure it's going to net out to what you really want it to be in the end. Um, for those that, that haven't listened to it, we do have a, a an eight-step web design process, that we, and we introduced that as part of a previous podcast. So if you're curious, probably some nuggets that are transferable to this conversation um, over there. So, and I think you're also right. So it, there's, there's another piece to that, that um, as part of that build, as part of that creation of, of an analytics solution set for your organization, there's the human capital side that often gets mm-hmm. overlooked. And I think you have that with almost any implementation of software, sure. right? We see it often with CRM implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had many, many organizations we've worked with move from some CRM or no CRM into a Salesforce or a HubSpot or something like that. And I think there's the, the underestimation of how much work there is to maintain mm-hmm. that. And to, to, you know, you said it earlier, you were working with a client that just felt like she was just a, a data wrangler and instead of a, a real CRM manager of some kind. And I think that that's true across CRMs, marketing automation platforms, uh, you name it, is the, the human side will never go away despite how well some of those pieces and parts work together. There's always got to be someone that owns it, manages it. Uh, fixes issues that pop up and, and that can be that can be insourced or that can be outsourced or both uh, in most cases probably mm-hmm. both like it's it's right it's varied it's varied based on the platforms sure. too right you know when we look at different crms they're not created equally as much as they would like to mm-hmm. make you think that you know even just comparing kind of the two two of the giants that we see often hubspot and salesforce they take fundamentally different approaches to a lot of things gathering analytics data is is one of them right hubspot kind of has a lot of that built in and is really i would argue set up more for you know your mid-market kind of clientele where you just need to be able to turn it on and start collecting mm-hmm. information and not have to worry about a lot of the mm-hmm. overhead and it'll do a good portion of that are you going to get to like super deep things or being able to tie to 
transactional data or layer in your finance data or pull things out effectively, maybe not, right? Um, you hit some some roadblocks and some walls because there's a vested interest yeah. in kind of keeping you within that walled garden uh, of theirs. Contrasting that with something like Salesforce, where Salesforce is like, I have a very love-hate relationship with Salesforce. Um, it, it, it's a lot like enterprise Lego blocks, mm-hmm. right? We can do almost anything you can possibly dream of, but we have to do all of it, right? There, there's no, uh, there's no little tracking script that that Salesforce gives you out of the box to just start feeding in, you know, tons of data that you get quote unquote for free from other platforms. Um, you know, you can, they have their platforms obviously that you can tie together and, you know, do all of those things, but you have to do the, you have to do the work, uh, to get there. Uh, so there's a lot more overhead associated with something like that. Yeah. I mean the total, total cost of ownership, right? Like talk about it all the time with clients, but like at the end of the day, we, we also talk about, um, human centered design, right? And that's, that's a very mm-hmm. big portion of what we're talking about when it's product development stories. Those are fine. Like that, everyone can, can connect the dots there. But like when you start talking about um, enterprise data strategies, no matter how big you are, the realization is that that still should be very human. And that right. so part of Ryan, like part of what you're saying is like, where, where's the where's the problem you're solving? Like, where's the human problem you're solving? Because it could be that HubSpot is the right solution for that human problem. It also could be that mm-hmm. you need Salesforce's entire marketing cloud and all that, all the rigmarole that comes with it right i mean like i don't know why you would need all that but um i also think like yeah somebody, somebody does it. they just it's just like it's just like adobe right like they're going to keep building to try to become the end all be all because what happens in these enterprises is as soon as they get something in they get a little there's some stickiness that happens and there's a realization that um if i if i just invest a little bit incrementally here then i'm going to mm-hmm. get x y and z and so they're just looking for the hook. So what? So part of what Adobe does and what Salesforce does is like they have 75 hooks. If I just throw out enough hooks in the ocean, someone's going to bite one of them and then I'll try to sell them three more hooks, right? Like that, right. it's SaaS 101 to some degree, but like they're, real, they're mm-hmm. both really good at it. Um, so that, yeah, I think if you take that into account, like you kind of can see through it and be like, okay, I can make this decision based on my needs and not, not, not on what they tell me I need. But at the same time, if you're a small company, you're, you're reliant on them. And that's where you see some movement that should well, be even has inter- enterprise mm-hmm. or mid market. Our advice to clients is always less yeah. is more, right? You, you you're, to your point, software as a service companies are brilliant at selling their services, right? They, they invest a huge amount of money in their marketing and sales teams, and they have a great story. Mm-hmm. The question is, what is your organization's tolerance for implementation, support, and adoption of whatever that tool stack is, right? right. Whether it's marketing automation, CRM, analytics, uh, you know, personal, personalized web cons- customer experiences, whatever, whatever any of that stuff is, you have to be able to support it after you buy it because they're not going to do that part for you. And most organizations, yeah. to your point, uh, Greg, they, they don't think about that side. They don't think about the what happens after I buy this. They think about the excitement of the upfront purchase because that's what the sales guy yep. told them. And they sell that into their their 
their bosses and put it as part of their budget. And then they celebrate that they got this great AI powered blah, blah, blah. That's like, you know, the, the worst thing you could possibly hear from a sales guy. Like validate that first. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think the you know we've we've spent lots of time on this in the past, Mark. Where you know no tool will solve a human problem, right? Nope. Um, you know you could you can have the best analytics platform or the best data collection platform or the the best ETL or ELT or you know whatever is best CDP, right? You could you could have the best all the acronyms. Um, but if, if you don't know what to do with it, if you haven't solved the human problem, uh, it will not solve your, your organizational problems. And I think that's a, a bit of a misnomer a lot of times that, you know, we've, we've even seen with other, you know, tangential platforms where, you know, a sales guy's job at the end of the day is to sell products. I'm not demonizing salespeople. I'm, I I play salesperson sometimes, right? Um, their job is to sell the product and try to find the the, the fit there. Um, and it, there's a lot of happy path that gets presented as a part of that, right? There's an assumption that organizationally you're ready for this, uh, that, you, that you're going to have compliance across the board, you know, mm-hmm. all of those sorts of things. Um, but the reality is you could potentially purchase a really expensive tool that could do some really cool shit and get absolutely nothing out of it solely because your organization wasn't ready for it and you didn't do the the due diligence or proper steps to make sure that that was the case. Yep. Right. I mean, it's honestly part of what we can do as, as consultants in the space is like, make sure that that's really clear because I think that's, I, I don't think it behooves a DXC at our size or an Oodle at your size to be um, anything other than like, helping to solve that problem in and of itself. Right. Like, um, that's kind of what I was like getting at when I say like, you know, we, we talk about human centered design when it comes to any solution. And that's because like your infrastructure should be human centered. It should be based on a, on a problem you're trying to solve. that's human focused. Um, I think many times really cool ideas, tools, solutions, software, dies on a vine because of that exact problem you're talking about, which is like, we had a really cool thing and did a really cool thing and forgot to make sure our people knew how to use it or forgot to make sure that we had somebody whose full-time job it was, was to manage that, right? Like that it dies on the vine. It dies on the vine on the enterprise, dies on the vine at a tiny little company when they fall I and mean, like when they, when someone adopts HubSpot and doesn't actively do it when, and they're, you know, a tiny little company, the same shit. Like it, it's just a smaller, smaller problem, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I think that will always be a problem. I think part of what we can do is lead with the business problem at all times, like lead with that um, existing challenge as a part of what, before we even talk about a methodology, Let's, let's understand that existing problem that we're trying to solve, right? Like that is the human portion of what we do in technology. Um, I agree with you hundred percent. There is not a tool that exists out there to perfectly solve for most problems. So there's always a human element to overcome that five, 10, 15, 20% of non solved challenge, right? 
Um, and then the first part is what you just said, right? It's the, it's the design mm -hmm. of it. So identifying and walking through the, 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 the process of creating the business case for what you're trying to solve is, is often a very lengthy process that organizations, um, are challenged to accept. Yeah. Right. So they, they want to get to market quickly and that's, that's kind of the challenge that we face on the delivery sure. end. They want to get to market quickly and prove value, but the infrastructure isn't really there to be able to prove the value in the way that they want or the way that we, that we even want. And so consulting the organization, like, Hey, like you're, you're going to see results, but they're not going to be as connected as you want to your point earlier around that trending data being able to connect all those pieces mm -hmm. together and be able to you know, foresee what's going to happen as opposed to, um, you know, getting it right now. It's a challenge. So how do you, how do you consult with organizations that may not be as ready as they think they are to, to jump down that path? Man, it's a good question. Um, I think everybody kind of falls into that. Even at, at the enterprise, the challenge looks a little different at the, at a vid market. Like I still consult on the side. Right. Um, and I think one of the challenges that you run into is like, we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation. Some of this is you have to have your house in order before you can get to a place where you're actually developing a solution. Um, your design for getting your house in order should be based on a problem though, not just on my house is messy. Um, so I, I think that there's an opportunity for us, like, again, like as consultants in the space to be very human centric and how we go about our business. Um, I think that, you know, I never, I'm never going to blame somebody on the client side who is trying to go fast. Um, there are methods for being agile and still getting a full understanding of the impact of like a, a prototype, which sometimes I think, I mean, I'll speak freely about like um, my organization. Sometimes we don't think about the width of a POC or an MVP um, being wide enough that it actually, uh, we actually get an understanding of like the organizational impact of that thing we're building, a product, right? Or that mm -hmm. solution, we're ju we're just looking at it to your point of like how do you get in market quick and see if it's going to work, and what we don't look at the downstream. So like in a PNG environment, what they what they do when they launch a new product, they launch a new product through direct to consumer almost a hundred percent of the time right now, and it is fully baked. It is in a distribution center in Mason. Um, and they run it all DTC so they can control the entire supply chain, but like it is fully manufactured, fully done. They want to understand the impact on and cost of shipping. They want to understand the impact and cost on all these things, not just like, can we sell this giant roll of toilet paper? They also want to understand <laughs> like their cost or is it cost prohibitive because I have to also sell mm -hmm. you a new toilet paper holder. It's giant. Mm -hmm. which is all a thing. Um, it's yeah. definitely a thing. I guess if I had 800 kids, I would have one of those giant papers things because it would make sense. <laughs> it's not that. I, I almost bought one just for the last. Like, 
the the idea that I could hang that up in the bathroom and people would come in and just be like, what the fuck is that? It's, uh, <laughs> I know a lot about this one because I also know the insight behind it. The insight was like people hate when they run out of toilet paper. That's like this basic insight. Yeah. The other insight was from P&G's perspective, we already produce this product because they do. They right. produce it for commercial environments. So mm-hmm. that pro- that giant roll of toilet paper all it needed was the holder. It right. didn't need it. They didn't have the and better toilet well, paper. They, they, like, they have Charmin com- commercial yeah. toilet paper. Yeah, do they, they really? In commercial rolls that already existed. You mean nobody buys it because it's expensive? Wow. It in theory mm-hmm. you could have that in your bathroom <laughs> at the office in there, and it would be and it's could work that way. But so really, they just repurposed. They took a product that they're selling to commercial, repurposed it for consumer, and now you have. You know, a subscription-based a toilet paper environment that they own the supply chain for, and they didn't have to do any real R and D. It's it's not it's yeah. pretty genius, really. Um, yeah. But again, they launched that, and they wanted to see that end to end. I think they had like three thousand products ready, or some some like number that they mm-hmm. always have. They always want to get to a certain. I don't know. There's probably science behind this. A certain threshold of. Um, movement in a period of time so if you if i can't Mm -hmm. figure out how to sell three thousand products in 90 days and deliver it in the window we think is necessary and not run into any cost prohibitive challenges then maybe it's meaningful let's go let's go take next step in in terms of r&d or insights um i think we can do the same thing i think we don't do that enough like i know dx doesn't do that enough like we build what we're asked to build but I think mm-hmm. there's an opportunity for us mm-hmm. to be like, um, let's also, as a part of our POC, maybe the POC is only going to affect one part of your business. Let's make sure that part of the business is intimately involved in the process and the design and that we're intimately involved in their training to use it, right? Like, otherwise, like, I, I personally don't want, it's exhausting to have things fail for reasons that are not associated with product being poor. Right. Like, right. and I'm, I'm yeah. speaking from coming from a SaaS company at times, but also like we build these custom solutions all the time. And, um, I do, there's an opportunity for us to be better. Um, and that, like I said, I mean, if we, if we look at that example, right, like there, there's kind of, you know, we could pick this apart a hundred ways, right? There's the, some of that is just a, PNG right there to have a product. Sure. So they have a backup plan, right? If this doesn't go well, we'll just, take the consumer ones, take the packaging off of them, sell them to commercial. And we've not lost that much, but also, you know, that type of company um, has kind of, the, they're already over some of those mental hurdles that, that, you know, regardless of how big your company is, right. You know, you can have, uh, we've had clients before that, I, that I've referred to as like the smallest or the, the largest small business mm-hmm. I've ever worked yeah. on. Right. Where from a mentality perspective, you know, it still very much operates like that, that smaller risk averse. Um, Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the idea of, of building something, manufacturing 3000 of them and having them warehoused and ready to go and, and working through supply chain and shipping and all of these things to provide a great customer experience. Right. Um, doesn't make any sense to them. Right. They're like, well, we'll we'll figure that out when the first person buys yep. it. 
uh, and we'll figure out how to make it better when 10 people buy it. Uh, and, and while that can be great for the company, it, it can potentially provide, cause a, uh, a real um, terrible experience from a user mm-hmm. perspective. If I, you know, go online and I see this, this ad about the, the, uh, the giant toilet paper roll, and I think it's hilarious, and I order it, and then I have to wait three fucking months to get it. Well, now I'm not interested. One hundred percent, and and maybe even the functionality of it is 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 also gone in my mind. Like, you know, whatever it is that had me interested, it's all it's all diminished. And then when other people ask me about it, right? What am I going to talk about? I'm not going to talk about how, you know, this made my life easier, and you know, now I don't have to deal with you know keeping extra toilet paper rolls and those sorts of things. As you know, and they should totally get on board with this subscription service. Uh, I talk about how I ordered it and it didn't show up for three months and it sucked. I'm back to just going to the grocery store and ordering. I'm pretty sure you just described your like multiple Kickstarter experiences for you. That's why I don't do Kickstarter anymore. I, yeah. I got burned on so many. I, I, I might, I might back something on Kickstarter if it's like my, my mate, my big rule now is no, no technology or electronics. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, those products, the, the volume that I've seen fail have been high enough and i'm like i'm just not backing yeah i mean Uh, in a perfect world which is not this world is not this perfect but like in a perfect world we would only have clients that are willing to or can understand that it's actually cheaper to make a one-time investment and go fail fast than it is to Mm -hmm. self-fund your way through a model like kickstarter or something like that like um well, and actually, there is there is a way a, a place that, that 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 works, right? Um, I, I've had some that I've backed, right? One of them is Nomadic. I, I've backed some of theirs, right? They've had Kickstarter campaigns uh, even more recently, right? They're they're not mm-hmm. a new a new company, um, but what they will do is they'll create a new product, and then they need money to scale yeah, it. One hundred percent, right? They, the and in that scenario, right? I as the the backer, right? I'm not, I'm not taking a flyer on, uh, on the fact that you're going to be able to figure something out, right? What I forget what it was, but one of the big ones years ago was one of the first ones to crack a bunch of records, uh, some sort of watch activity monitor thing. Um, oh, it's oh, Pebble. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, took like, didn't you buy a Pebble, Greg? Uh, maybe. Have I bought a lot of things? Yeah. In the past? yeah. It was like two years, three years from when the Kickstarter closed to when that thing even shipped. And there was a lot of question in there as to like, is there even a product here? Could could, could it fail? And it could have. Um, that's a bit of a different approach, I think, than like, hey, we've got a, you know, in Nomadic's case, it's backpacks and bags. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got a bag here. I can show it to you. Uh, the next step is to scale mm-hmm. it, right? And And there's... A benefit for especially a small or mid-sized company to being able to have a few million bucks in your pocket to be able to uh, to order at scale and manufacture and ship prior to having to incur all of those uh, those expenses yourself out of your own pocket. Right? There's a uh, popular guy I watch him on YouTube. It's the Linus Tech Tips. He just did a whole. He's got a video. He did a um, made a screwdriver and he made a, a backpack mm-hmm. recently, ironically enough. Um, and he had where he was talking about kind of the, the expense and the challenge behind all of that and how, you know, order to, in order to 
he's kind of predicting sales and in order to meet what he projects as sales demand has to make potentially a million dollar investment of cash outlay um, in order to, to fund that, to have enough product. So it's like this big, this big game. Uh, you just gotta be mature enough, be mature enough to know that like the transition from pre-purchased, um, you know, product to rapidly purchase product on a, um, you know, daily basis means you need to manufacture at that same pace. Not you got you're transitioning away from like that big one-time manufacturer activity and then delivering on all the things that have been pre-purchased to I need to be able to manufacture it at scale still, but at speed. And you know, being able to predict all that. Like that's where the maturity I think comes into play. Like there are still a lot of companies out there. I've, I mean like I follow a lot of golf companies. Many of these guys that make like amazing ball markers or something like that, they just make a limited run of them. And when they sell out, they sell out. Mm. And because they're not mature enough as a business to realize like there's an opportunity for me to make this and run a um, more of a connected manufacturing environment where I'm like, I'm producing every Monday a set number of this ball marker so that I always have it in stock. And I know that because I'm looking at analytics. Um, like mm-hmm. those, that's, I think there's a maturity scale that some of these companies aren't prepared for, which is part of like why you see some failure. Although we tried to talk about this. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, we, we could talk forever about rapid prototyping mm-hmm. and the pitfalls of data and analytics, but you know, I want to let you actually have like the rest of your day. So, Greg, if somebody wants to get a hold of you uh, to to talk more about analytics or anything else, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Um, let's see. I'd say the easiest thing to do is to email me at greg at wedgwoodanalytics.com, which is the consultants here on the side. That's it. Most Perfect. Direct. Nice. Well, Greg, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, for everyone that's listening, you've reached the end. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find us on social media at Oodles of Marketing. Thanks for listening.